Trail and Ultra Runners, what is going on? What's happening? Welcome to another episode of the Coopcast. Glad everybody is here with me today. This is another episode that I've been recording out on the road for the last few weeks. I recorded one from a hotel room because my van broke down and that's a totally separate story. This one I'm recording directly out of the adventure van on the heels of going out to the Bigfoot 200 to pace one of my athletes, which was a great experience. A really hard race this year because it was extremely hot, above 90 degrees for the first day. And I gotta say, these 200 mile races are becoming cooler and cooler. And Candace Burt and her team over at Destination Trail has just done a fantastic job cultivating a really neat community there. And they've got these races as problematic as they have been to run with COVID. And now there's a bunch of fires out in the Tahoe area. They've just done a good job operationally figuring things out. So kudos to her and her staff. Longtime listeners of the podcast remember last week we talked with Jamie Pugh about this recent research paper that came out that kind of overviewed how gastrointestinal distress really starts and really manifests itself in endurance athletes. And the title of that paper is Gastrointestinal Pathophysiology During Endurance Exercise, Endocrine, Microbiome, and Nutritional Influences. This week on the podcast is an extension of last week's podcast where we have the lead author of that paper and Kyle Smith, who is uh, in the research department at the University of Arizona. And I have to say that young Kyle Smith here, he punches above his weight and experience. I just learned this during the podcast. That this is the second paper that he's produced and he is with a lot of heavy hitters right out of the gate. So kudos to you, Kyle, and your young and in your young career that is on a very fast trajectory right now, I expect great things coming out of Kyle and the University of Arizona. What we really wanted to focus on on this podcast was first to try to set the table on how all of these different gastrointestinal distresses or stressors actually start when we begin to exercise. And then we move down to the very practical and pragmatic ways that we can alleviate them both before, during the actual training process, and then when they actually occur during the race. And as always with this podcast, if you get bored with simple solutions, you're gonna be a little bit bored with this podcast because the solutions are remarkably simple. Interesting, but simple at the same time. I had a lot of fun with it, as I do with all my podcasts. I hope you guys do too. I hope there's a lot of practical things that everybody takes away from it. So here we go. I'm going to get out of the way. Here's my conversation with Kyle Smith, all about GI distress and how to prevent it from happening in the first place, which is the most important part. You were rocking a sweet mullet, I must say, right out of the gate. Good thank you. Thank you. Good choice, my friend. <laughs> Appreciate it. Uh, well, you are you're in Arizona, right? I am. Yeah, Southern Arizona. Yeah, yeah. Well, we used to have an office in Tucson, so. Um, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. The mullet goes a long way in Southern Arizona. It's oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Some say it's ergogenic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna leave that in the recording. The mullet is ergogenic. I love it. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, good. Well, thanks for joining me, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited uh, about this. What uh, What do you guys currently have cooking in your lab? Uh, so yeah, I'm in actually a strict exercise immunology lab. So 
uh, we do a lot of um, cancer immunotherapy. We look at how exercise can maybe augment treatments uh, for those with cancer or even the, the treatment itself. Um, different kind of tumor models and animals. Uh, and then we do a whole lot of stuff with uh, astronauts as well, looking at kind of exercise to mitigate uh, psychological stress and then therefore hopefully maintain immune function in space. So we've got a, we've got a lot of things cooking right now. So I didn't, I, so, so I didn't know that. So then what's the connection between that type of research and the paper we're about to talk about? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's funny how it all works out. So um, I did my master's at Florida State uh, under Dr. Mike Ormsby. And so I, I, the, the gut stuff kind of just fell in my lap. We were going to go to, uh, the Ultraman, uh, ultra triathlon. Um, and I was, I was interested in looking at inflammatory markers. Uh, and then with the collaborator, you thought, you know, might as well look at gut stuff too. Uh, so that was kind of handed to me. And then, um, we published that paper last year. I'd already moved on from my master's here to the PhD. And after we published that in the European journal of applied physiology, they reached out and said, Hey, like this paper, uh, would you guys want to write a review? And so that's how that culminated. So we linked up with Jamie and Graham Close in the UK and got it done. Dude, you you uh, hooked up with some heavy hitters, man, right out of the gate there. It's almost like I, I know. <laughs> I always tell these coaches you got to take the opportunities that like fall into your lap like that. I and mean, for you, like you know, one probably one of your you know, first, is this your first lead lead paper or one of the first lead papers that you've had? Yeah, second. So the first yeah. one was a, was a gut, gut paper. Yeah, so yeah. It, it was it was a big opportunity, and not gonna lie, I was a little intimidated when we when we were working with those UK folks. But well, it's like like I said, you gotta take advantage of the opportunities in front of you, man. You get you get an opportunity to uh, collaborate with particularly Graham. With, no, with all due respect to Jamie, who's great, and he was yeah. on, he was on the podcast last week. Man, you uh, you jumped into the fire, and it's a great paper. Um, thank you. Yeah. So it's, it's really good. It's been covered in a number of, of different news articles and the listeners will remember last week, we talked to Jamie about some aspects. We've already kind of gone through this weird transition that you've had personally working, yeah. in, uh, kind of not specifically or exclusively in exercise immunology type of setting, but then moving it, moving it over to gut function. But what would, with athletes in particular, right? it always seems like we learn from other disciplines from astronauts, like, like you were mentioning earlier to people in more of a disease setting. We take those, we take learnings from those and we start to apply them into an, in in an athletic realm. So things that were originally intended for something else somehow get intended for an athletic realm. Do you see it like any of those parallels just in the early work that you've been doing? Yeah, definitely. From both sides. So, especially when it comes to the gut stuff, there's a lot we can pull from the clinical side, you know, people suffering. In fact, that was kind of the justification for my first paper looking at inflammatory markers because let's add some markers. No one's looked at before because we see them in situations like Crohn's disease or IBD. And maybe that's, they're playing a role here in exercise, especially ultra. uh, And maybe we can measure them. That didn't pan out. Um, But that's one example, just taking it from the clinical side. And then from, you know, maybe the astronaut side, they are indeed athletes. So, uh, you know, they have to exercise a lot up there. And so, you know, we're interested in uh, reducing the stress response. So being in space is inherently stressful. Um, and so that leads to a bunch of negative consequences, some of which are immune oriented. And so we're trying to see if exercise can, can mitigate some of those things. Um, and that, that kind of shares a link too, because I, I think you've had Patrick Wilson on here before, right? Yeah. yeah and so he's, I think he's kind of driving um, a little bit of research in the area of kind of psychological stress and GI issues in athletes. Uh, so it's it's kind of in the same kind of realm. How can we reduce the the stress response, and therefore it might actually translate to 
less GI issues and then increased performance. So uh, it's funny, we pull from all these different fields to kind of generate these ideas. It's always multidisciplinary. Um, Definitely. So with GI distress, we typically look at it as one of the bigger limiting factors in ultra in ultra running performance. And there's this kind of classic paper that Marty Hoffman did several years ago that surveyed athletes at the end of the Western States 100. And they asked them kind of what impacted your performance and GI issues rose to the kind of, kind of to the top of the list. And we've used that ever since as this, this kind of very literal litmus test of, okay, this is the biggest thing that limits performance. But we're starting to appreciate more and more that, A, there's a range of GI issues that are out there. And there's also a range within each one of those GI issues in terms of severity. And then there's also a range of how all of those actually impact performance, which go from, well, you know, as Jamie put it last week, I was just farting out on the course, right? And that's not going to impact my performance that much to I'm puking on the side of the road or the trail for three or four hours and I can't hold down food and I, and I, and I might even drop out. And that's a huge range, right? right? From nothing to dropping out is, is the biggest range you can actually think of. So can you kind of contextualize that picture just a little bit better based on what you learned from doing the research in the paper in terms of how impactful that range is and and how athletes need to need, need to kind of like look at the potential performance impacts? Yeah, definitely. So it, it definitely makes the research harder, the variability in, not only people's responses, but then the severity. So uh, in terms of the, the incidence of, of these symptoms, like we know in, in ultra, like they're, they're just going to happen. Right. So right. we can just put that on, on the table. That's going to happen. But for the athletes themselves, it, it may be that the severity of whatever symptom it is kind of guides the intervention. So, you know, most people deal with nausea as their biggest issue during these races. Uh, but some people might have extreme lower GI issues, uh, and especially as the duration goes on. And so that, you know, we can address, try to at least the best of our ability with the research we have address those individual symptoms based on which are more severe, because those are the most likely to impact uh, performance. And like you said, it could be something that's just a minor annoyance to completely dropping out of the race. And even in some cases, hospitalization. So, uh, it is a huge range. So is it kind of an unfair umbrella to cast over all of these things? I use the analogy of strength training all the time, right? We use strength training to encompass everything from like plyometric types of lifts to physical therapy activities. And that's a huge, you know, maybe sometimes 100 or even maybe 500x in terms of the force production. Right. Is is it? Are you kind of viewing this GI distress as the same thing as it's a little bit of an overly broad umbrella because of all of those different impacts and the severity? Yeah, definitely, definitely. And you know, the, I think the research is starting to recognize that. So, at, you know, you look maybe ten years ago, we're looking at just overall GI symptoms during exercise. But as the papers develop, um, you know, now they're starting to get split into upper GI issues, lower GI issues, maybe psychological influence. And so, I think that's a really good thing that's starting to happen in the literature. Is we're starting to tailor it and get a little more specific because everybody's different and you can't just kind of blanket statement all of GI issues. So, okay. So let's, let's take a note and then you're going to have to probably correct me more than I'm going to correct you because you're the expert. I'm going to paint the overly broad brush and you can kind of drill it down to the, down to, down to the specific ones. And this is, this, this is a good transition point to those specific ones. There is a, there is a range 
of all of these complaints in endurance sport. And, you know, they've looked at triathletes and cyclists and marathoners and Ultraman athletes, you know, like, like you're uh, involved in who have a lot of GI issues as well. I think that's the, one of the better parallels to ultramarathon running. And the, the, overview of complaints is just like this like laundry list i feel like of 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 different of different gi systems which is the which is the broad umbrella um what are the like what are the more impactful ones in terms of performance when we look at that whole laundry list of things i think probably the the number one we got to focus on is the most common which is nausea um so some of the symptoms that we, we experience are more just uncomfortable. Um, so like say like bloating or flatulence or, or something like that. Those are, those are just uncomfortable. I mean, they, they can verge on, on pain, especially in the bloating situation, but something like nausea, not only is it extremely uncomfortable, but actually is going to limit, especially in ultra race and nutrition, fluid intake, everything. So it actually has the, the potential to really impact performance besides just how we feel and want to drop out or, or whatever the psychological feeling. It's almost like a and second then, order effect, right? Or the, the impact yeah. is on a second order effect. Yeah, definitely. And then, uh, you know, th- that's the most common, but then for the athletes that also get lower GI stuff where they, you know, they have to run off the trail or they have to find port a body or something like that's, that's a huge issue as well. And so I tend to think of those two as the biggest. So kind of diarrhea on the, on the lower side or, uh, nausea on the upper side, but then there's this huge range of things in between, um, you know, uh, cramping, bloating, flatulence, stuff that that influence both of them um, and commonly occur, but tend not to really detrimentally affect performance like like those two ends of the spectrum do. And take take the listeners through the severity component of nausea and how you determine it in the lab, because we're we're going to talk a little bit about that. But if you have no sense of how does how does somebody like you in the field who's trying to put this scale on things and we're relaying that scale to people who might not have ever experienced that, right? They just think, oh, I'm puking on the side of the trail. But in reality, what you need to do is you need to say, okay, what like what is the actual severity of that? How how does that work in the field so we can calibrate that in everybody's minds right now? Yeah, that's a little bit easier in the lab because you can really explain how you want it done and familiarize them with the scale. I mean, all we can really do is, is provide the scale and you know, it's usually like one to 10 or, or something. And of course the response is completely subjective. So someone's five might be someone else's eight, right. you, you know, you never know. Uh, but in the field itself, you probably have limited time with the participants to, you know, educate them on what you want done on your scale. Uh, and so it, it definitely complicates it. And most of ultra research has to be a field study, right? So uh, that's a struggle is explaining, you know, zero corresponds to this, whereas 10 corresponds to the absolute worst nausea. You, you have to quit the race uh, sort of thing. Um, that's, that's a tricky question because it's so subjective. Uh, and the best, and it sucks that the best we can do is a scale, right? Right. We, we don't the, have like a biochemical marker or, you know, that's exactly what like I was going to point out. Right. I mean, we we're used to seeing things like lactate and CPK as kind of surrogates yeah. of other types of activity that are going on and that are going on the body with GI distress, while there are some bio, biochemical markers that can, that, that can indicate of, uh, that can be indicated of, uh, 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 damage in terms of the actual nausea that people are experiencing, which is the functional part of it. You're right. It is entirely subjective. Yeah. And actually that's another really hard part of this research is you look at all these laboratory studies and yeah, they might observe a marker that we associate with damage or increased permeability of the gut. 
but yet that person had no symptoms. Right. And so we try, we're trying to link these things as the causes, but it, it doesn't always equal one-to-one. And that's, that's a really hard part of, of kind of interpreting the research. Okay. So this is, this kind of brings me to what I really wanted to talk to you about the most is, is like, how does it happen? Right. How does yeah. it, how does an athlete go from standing on the start line? I've got my nutrition plan dialed. I've done it in training. I know what the heck's going on to some handful of hours later, everything starts to unravel and they can't take in food and they're, you know, kind of a mess right. on, they're a mess on the side of the trail. What things are potentially happening between that start line and that point from a physiological perspective that is, that is, that has caused this state that we're trying to avoid. Right. Yeah. So totally linked, but yeah, if we just consider the physiology and then, then the nutrition as a separate influence, um, you'll notice in a lot of these gut reviews, we all tend to say the same thing over and over again when it comes to the <laughs> cause, because we, we really can't go past that yet. Uh, but there's a, there's a few main causes that most people agree on. Right. And so, one of which is uh, the simplest, which I'll just uh, put in here at the beginning because it, we can't talk about it that much, is uh, the mechanical damage to the lining of, of the gut. So uh, most symptoms are observed in runners. And so the thought is that, you know, that repetitive foot strike is causing impact and, and this jostling of the gut over time, especially over hours and hours, uh, causes damage to the gut, which is going to lead to, you know, you name it down the line. That's, that's obviously not a good thing. But we, don't, we can't really observe that very well. But that's thought to occur because of running being the, the prominent sport that produces GI symptoms. And can, the, can, um, can, can we pause on that really quick? Like another one of the yeah. thought, another one of the reasons that that is a thought is what we see when we do gut testing in mm-hmm. like a cycling modality versus a running modality when the, when the caloric intake is roughly equal, right? The cyclists right. can tolerate, they have fewer, you know, they're, they're, lower on the incident scale, they're lower on the severity scale, kind of however you want to slice and dice it. And they're also lower on the biochemical uh, markers that you're, that you're referring to as compared to the runners, when you kind of look at an equivalent, an equivalent trial. So it's thought to be, it's not necessary or in it, the intensity is a smaller component than the jostling from that perspective. Right. Yeah. And again, it's a very, that's a very hard thing to quantify. Right. Uh, it's, right. it's a, we observe these effects and say, Oh, that's probably playing a role, but there's not a really good lab way to test. Like you just completely jostle the gut. Does that cause a lot of damage? Right. That's not an easy thing to test. So that's why we can't talk about it that much, but that that's a good point between cycling running, which is a good segue to like the next major cause, um, that we observe, uh, regardless of cycling or running, which is blood flow restriction. So as soon as you start exercising, um, the gut is going to lose uh, a portion of blood flow. So at rest, um, the gut may receive around 30% of your cardiac output. I mean, it's a substantial amount That's of blood. That's a lot. Yeah. It's going to the gut. Yeah, it's a lot. Uh, and as soon as we start exercising, that blood is needed elsewhere, right? So the working muscle, the lungs, the heart, and then especially if it's in the heat, uh, the skin to cool us off. So uh, the gut serves as the major reservoir of blood. Uh, in the body. So that's where we pull from. You get constriction of vessels in the gut. And it's going to reduce that blood flow. Uh, part of the uh, cause of that is going to be uh, catecholamines. So exercise essentially is a stressor. It almost, it's almost analogous to a fight or flight response. So you're going to get a huge increase in epinephrine, norepinephrine, um, both systemically and then locally within the gut to constrict blood flow, uh, which is not a good thing in the gut because just the way that parts of the gut operate, um, kind of the, the way the enterocytes uh, are designed, blood kind of comes up from the bottom of them and then circulates back down. And so that the tip of many of the cells in the gut are already low oxygen environment. 
So if you further reduce blood flow, you're causing kind of a local hypoxic response, which is not good for cells uh, and theorize that that causes a lot of damage. That's not only going to cause inflammation, it may cause kind of phosphorylation of these tight junctions that keep our cells together and maintain that gut lining. Uh, and that's going to lead to a whole host of other problems. So that's, I'd say that's the more universal thing is for sure there's restriction of blood flow. And does this kind of like lead, like circle us back to one of the ways to alleviate nausea and other types of GI distress? You can see how I'm pausing there. I'm trying to add some level of detail to the, to, to the GI distress umbrella. Um, is to just slow down and cool off. I mean, that's what we've been saying to athletes for, you know, well over a decade right now. This is my third decade coaching, and I can remember saying this just ad nauseum. Just slow down and cool off. And we really didn't know that that was, you know, an efficacious intervention that we could could use, as simplistic as it is. But based on that, based on the mechanistic happenings that you just described, that tried and true saying slow down and cool off is kind of one of the big things right cool off you're you're exactly. you're redistributing the the blood flow that's gone to the skin hopefully back to the stomach and slow down you're redistributing the blood flow that's to the muscles back to the stomach as well right exactly and so it's funny that many of the recommendations specific recommendations we can make to avoid these issues are incredibly practical like that just you need to cool down slow down you know any way you can. So unfortunately we can't get too specific with the recommendations. That's, that's one big one because by and large, if you look at the research, if you add heat as another component of what you're testing and looking at anything in the gut, it almost always exacerbates symptoms. So sure. it's thought because of that blood flow uh, issue. Not necessarily, one, one the, not necessarily the temperature inside the stomach, but the blood flow redistribution that's caused from the heat or is it both? It's both. It's both. Yeah. Uh, so just linking it back to the, the whole universal blood flow restriction, that's definitely going to exacerbate that because we've got to move more blood to the skin to cool. Um, but as core temperature rises too, it, it's correlated with many of these, uh, not only damage, but side effects as well. Okay. So we've got jostling, right? Mm-hmm. Which we can, we can, we can realist. I mean, I don't know. This is one of those things where I think it's a logical a logical guess that the jostling is part of it. Blood flow restriction, right. this low oxygen environment. What what else can potentially cause, or I'll also say exacerbate any of these types of issues, either during the event itself or going into an event with, you know, we talk about going into an event under trained and things like that, going into it, going into an event where we know we're going to stress this whole gastrointestinal system to a certain extent. Yeah. So the, the, the two ones that come to mind immediately are one that's completely under research, which is the psychological component. Um, you know, I think there's been a correlation at this point that those that increase more, uh, experience more anxiety or stress and have more GI issues during the race. And those would probably pre-race anxiety as well. Uh, so that's one thing leading up to the race. And the other huge one in this whole component is nutrition. So, uh, in the days leading up to the event, there's a number of things that you could be ingesting, ingesting that, you know, may, already put you in a situation that's going to make it rough during the event. And that, that requires a lot more detail. We can get into that, but, uh, but I'd say those are, those are two of the big ones. Um, the other, the other thing is just the, on the practical side, again, like the, the saying, you know, don't try anything new on race day, right? Like that, that's, that's a good, good advice because if, if all of a sudden you're trying something new that may affect either blood flow or, or nutrition, uh, it may lead to GI issues. So those are, those are kind of the big three things leading up to the event. You know what I also extend that don't try anything new on race day too, because most people think about that as like a type of food, right? I'm right. I'm yeah. eating gels and I'm going to try a pretzel or something like that, which is probably a pretty benign, you know, change at the end of yeah. the day. But I also extend it to rate, 
right? Yeah. Because there's a lot of athletes that'll train at, let's just say 200 calories an hour. And then they try to race at 300 calories an hour. I view that extra hundred calories an hour as, as quote unquote new. They're trying that right, new exactly. on race day, that rate component. And, and, you know, race day is not like a training day. Like you're going to, you're going to be a little more amped up. You're going to have a little more anxiety too. So it's already you're throwing that into the mix. And then if you're adding extra calories, uh, it's just, uh, all these things have to be practiced. I'm sure we'll get into like the practical recommendations towards the end here, but, uh, all these things have to be practiced before you, you know, actually take it to the course. Well, if anything, it should be less than, right? Because if everything else is amped up, all that blood, you're going harder during the race than you are during training. Yeah. You, from your body systems capabilities or from your GI systems capabilities, in theory, it actually should be less than what you're actually experiencing on training, which is an interesting component because nobody does it that way, right? Everybody wants to supersede what they've done in training and racing. Well, yeah. And it's, it's hard, you know, to, you know, actually take a step back and, you know, maintain your pace. You're going to be excited. I mean, in ultra, eventually you're going to have to settle into a pace, right. But especially for shorter events, maybe marathon, you can imagine, you know, like I'm just going to push a little bit harder, um, push my pace a little bit harder and that's, uh, fun, but you know, when it comes to GI issues. It's, it's really like, what are, what are you used to? What is the gut used to? Uh, and that's one of the best ways to avoid symptoms. I think one, I think an interesting way to look at this, it kind of, circling back to the complaints component is where those complaints occur. And you looked at a lot of research from, let's just say like the 10 K and running and 40 K and cycling duration all the way up to ultra distance. And that's a big, huge range. There seems to be almost kind of like a bell curve that exists in terms of what athletes are having the, the kind of the, the, the most problems and it's not at either ends of the spectrum. I mean, it's kind of like in, in the middle of it. Can you kind of go through that and theorize to a certain extent why you think that is? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'd say the, the general rule of thumb with uh, any GI symptoms. So regardless if it's upper or lower, it seems that as duration or workload increases, the likelihood increases. Um, and that's why we, you know, assume basically all ultra athletes are going to experience something. Just duration some is, is, is at the yeah, maximum. Yeah, it's just right? through the roof. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But in the shorter races, um, again, depending on intensity, but uh, it doesn't really, based on our understanding of what we think the mechanism, the physiological mechanism is, uh, it doesn't really seem like they're providing enough time for some of those symptoms to occur. Um, and a lot of this is going to be dependent on nutrition. So if you're doing a 10 K, do you really need to be, you know, really focusing on nutrition right. and ingesting something during the race? You don't. So you kind of eliminate that aspect and that's probably upper GI because it's just a short duration. Uh, you, you probably don't need to be taking in carbohydrate during the 10 K. Um, but as you increase the duration, maybe get up to marathon, then it becomes, you know, more of an issue, especially for people who aren't running it super fast. They're, you know, it goes on to four or five hours. You know, you're, you're going to have some most likely, uh, during the race nutrition, it's going to increase the severity of upper GI issues, but then the duration is sufficient at that point that we may start to see more lower GI issues. And it's hard to really be specific about that because some people will experience lower GI issues just from anxiety. So, right. uh, you know, that could happen anyway, but in terms of me the mechanism of what we're thinking about blood flow restriction, uh, and then, you know, sufficient time, maybe with that jostling effect, like it, as you go on in distance, the more symptoms you're going to experience. So I have this experience out in the ultra marathon world where I go and I attend a lot of events and I see by far the most GI issues at the hundred K and hundred mile distance. I see far fewer at 50 K 
almost none at the marathon, not that they don't exist, but almost none at the marathon. And just this past weekend, I was at a 200 mile race and I hard, I hardly saw any of it. You see little, but not a whole lot of it. It's 200 mile. Yeah. 200 mile race. Um, it, but the, but I kind of, I kind of, it kind of speaks to this duality of duration and intensity. Yeah. I guess it could be and, and, or intensity because of the 200 exactly. mile yeah. distance, the intensity is just so low right. that you have the opportunity to eat a whole bunch of stuff and your blood flow isn't redistributed so much due to the exactly. low output. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, if it's, it's a super long duration and it's just, the requirement is your pace has to be very slow. You know, are you pushing the physiological threshold for causing, you know, severe reductions in blood flow that would lead to symptoms? Maybe not. And maybe that's why you're not seeing symptoms. Of course, we haven't done that research. It's, it's incredibly hard to do, uh, but that, that would be the logical conclusion there. Whereas, you know, if you go half that distance, it's still an extremely long race, right? But people can push a little harder and then perhaps we're crossing that threshold into reduction in blood flow uh, enough to cause symptoms. And the blood flow reduction really could cause symptoms across the whole the whole length of the GI tract. So, uh, again, that's very individual-based, uh, person to person. If you want uh, subjects for studying 200 milers and GI distress, I can I can hook you up with some. We'll we can arrange that. We can arrange that. Okay, so let's drill down to the really nitty gritty practical stuff. Right, we're going to take the simple scenario of a runner, and I'll pick the hundred mile distance because that's the one that we see the most of. They get through okay. 50 or 60 miles and they start getting nauseous, right? They might throw up. They might just not be able to take in calories. Let's take a before and then during approach of what they could have done in advance okay. to, poti- to potentially alleviate that. And then if they just you know didn't do any of that stuff beforehand, which most people don't, what, what potential things could they do in the race? Let's start with the before, though. Like before okay. the race actually unfolds. What does the research say about the things that could that could be preventative against having a lot of these issues? Okay, yeah, let's roll with the assumption that they're not doing any of these interventions, right? They just go out and run, and that's what they do. Yeah, and that's yeah, how they yeah. train. exactly. Uh, so uh, the, the simplest, and I, I think actually the most promising, is gut training, right? So uh, both fluid and carbohydrate, well, really just nutrients in general, but fluid and carbohydrates especially, you need to practice ingesting those during your training, much like you would during the event. So practice how you're going to race. So, and this isn't like, uh, you know, you go out for your hour to two hour run and you know, you can take in 30 grams of carbs. So you assume you'll be fine for the entire ultra marathon, you know, 30 grams of carbs per hour. Uh, this is like, you know, on, on your longer runs, go ahead and try and take that fluid in while you're running, uh, what you think you'd need for your event so that your gut gets used to it. And the same with the carbohydrate, find out where your limit is because, uh, one of the disconnects between the research and the practical side, and I hear it all the time, like everyone knows what the carbohydrate recommendations per hour are, right? Like, oh yeah, you need 90 grams per hour and that'll improve your performance. But it's just completely impractical, especially for someone who does not practice that. If you take, like that's a n- nothing new on race day, right? If you took someone who does not used to taking in carb at all and they tried 90 an hour uh, during the ultra marathon, I don't think they're finishing the race, to be honest with you. So That, that 90 grams per hour recommendation all pun intended, it drives me bananas because yeah. people take it as such a dogmatic number. And I appreciate all of Asker Juke and Jupe's research that has gone into right. that. And it's absolutely efficacious in a lot of practical situations. But A, if you don't practice it, being in an ultra marathon setting, it's not even necessary because your output yeah. for almost everybody, except for the elite athletes, is not high enough to really require that much. 
that's so that's exactly, another yeah. that's another thing. So let's stay on gut training for a little bit because yeah. you know I'm a coach and I wouldn't let somebody say, "Oh, well, you just have to train for an ultra marathon, right?" Because it's not specific enough, right? You just have to right. go run. Like you said, go through your race day pro your race day routine. Does it need to be more than that? And how frequently and for how long do you think that that, and I'm, I'm saying think intentionally because it's not something that we've kind of quite pinned down. How, right. for how long in advance does that training need to occur? So for example, somebody, I get this question all the time on Instagram. How long do I need to train for an ultra marathon? Right. In how, general, like it, all training. Oh, yeah. trust me. It's yeah. And yeah. I can't even answer that. Right. So right. I'm going to ask you the impossible question as well, but let's try to right. get a little bit of, of a fix on it. Like realistically, how, like, what what's the dose response in order to create something adaptive to actually happen and for that to have an impact it, uh, on race day? Yeah. So we don't, we don't have a ton of research on this, but we do have some really solid studies. Uh, both Asker Yukon groups and Ricardo Costa's groups have done some really good work in this area. And so I'd say in terms of how long is it going to take to cause some adaptations in your gut, if you're doing the right thing in terms of gut training uh, weeks, okay. I, I think, I think weeks. Yeah. I mean, you might, some of the research is like one to two weeks and that works. Um, but then you run the risk of, you know, if you're doing everything perfect and maybe have some issues during your training, uh, you don't want to do that. Just, just start that one to two weeks before your event. Right. So I would say weeks, you know, start thinking about this weeks out. And then uh, the recommendations are, you know, practice what you're going to need. But like you said, more might actually be better. So part of it is determining what you can tolerate to begin with, because, um, if you're doing more than you can tolerate, you're not even going to complete your training sessions. So, um, you know, you kind of do that threshold. So like we we're saying with the 90 grams per hour, don't jump to that. Start with one gel an hour, you know, or one Gatorade or something, um, and see if you can tolerate that and then work your way up. Uh, that's, that's one just really practical thing is that you don't take like the, the max, you know, to the max, uh, estimate of carbohydrate needs or fluid needs. And then just start with that. Start small, make sure you can tolerate stuff and work your way up. And that takes time. That's why I'm saying weeks rather than just one to two weeks. Um, because these adaptations can occur rather rapidly if you're, if you're doing it frequently and much of this research is doing it like five days a week. So that it is pretty frequent. Um, but I would say weeks out, start, uh, decide how much fluid based on the temperature of your race also, but how much fluid you think you'll need and try to take that in at least that much uh, during, you know, maybe spread it out over an hour, decide how much you're going to drink. Uh, and then, uh, you can add the carbohydrate in as well. And I would start with, I think it's simplest just to do a gel, right? Like just one gel an hour, see if you can tolerate it. Um, and another practical recommendation there is not to just like, okay, this is hour one. I'm going to chug all the water and take all gel all at once. Like it's, it's probably better to spread it out over that, that amount of time. Um, so I think that's how people could start this process and then you start to tailor it. So I, I know I can tolerate this, uh, for three hours. Uh, let me try a little bit more fluid, a little bit more carbohydrate, because if you, if you do practice more, I would say, and again, there's little research here, but I would say that it's less likely that you're going to have issues on race day if you're doing a little bit less than what you're used to. So, uh, it's almost like it's, endurance it's tricky, training, but, right? It takes weeks. Yeah. Endurance training is probably a little bit longer, but it, take, it takes weeks, not days. And you want to use some type of progressive overload structure. Yeah. It's almost has to be periodized, which is right. strange, but yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I, th I think that that's really salient that the fact that you don't want to start out at okay, I just, I, I guess my maximum is going to be 400 calories an hour or however you want to slice and dice it. I'm going to start yeah. low and then kind of titrate up from there and let the adaptive process kind of coincide with the training process that's actually, that's actually going on. Right. Yeah. 
So it's, it's going to take time and that's why it's not easy to, to do these things. But from, from the, before the race perspective in the training, training days, I'd say those are two of the biggest vision is becomes an absolute must in ultra, right? So you can probably get away with short, you know, half marathon or something, you know, not doing anything, but as the distance increases, nutrition's a given. So you need to practice that and, and you want to take in as much as you can uh, to increase performance. So, okay. So all the experts have kind of like come down to the same thing. Gut training mm-hmm. is first before all, yeah. before all of the other interventions that can kind of happen. Not that they're not mutually exclusive because they can definitely benefit from each other. But before you start down the path of any of these other interventions that we're going to talk about, gut training kind of has to happen first. That's like the, almost like the foundation of, of, w- of what you're trying to figure out. Fortunately, it helps training as well, right? I mean, you take yeah. in some calories during training, your training is better, your training is better, your fitness is better and things like that. But right, making exactly. it a deliberate part of training, I think is a different context. Okay. So we're still in the before gut training's your yeah. heavy hitter. What else before the event can the athletes do to help mitigate some of this GI distress? Uh, two things come to mind. So one is more on the nutrition side as well. So, uh, you know, everybody practices different diets. Um, so it, it gets really individualized here. Uh, but one of the aspects that's receiving a lot of attention right now is low FODMAP diets, right? So, uh, these are diets that kind of exclude, the uh, short carbohydrates that may cause gut issues. So a bunch of different types of foods that if you ingest, um, not only draw fluid into your gut, which you, you probably don't want during this time, but also, um, are fermented by bacteria in the gut, produce a bunch of gas and therefore potentially symptoms. Uh, so without getting into the nitty gritty on that, uh, not, not that people are advocating for low FODMAP all the time, but just that maybe in the day before the event, you're not taking in a ton of fiber, uh, or anything like that, that, that could still be around during your event that could be fermented and cause some issues. So I'd, I'd say that's probably one of the last very practical nutrition recommendations. Um, it's a little harder to do. I'd say the gut training is, uh, definitely prioritized there. And then the last, last practical thing is just plan, right? Uh, um, these things, you know, know what you're going to do at each aid station or this mile marker, I'll have this ready. So you can kind of actually plan out how you're going to uh, do your fluid nutrition, cooling even, uh, throughout the race. I think that's, that's huge. Cause if you just go in head first, it's, I think it's more likely that you'll experience it. So you're, you're, you're going to have to get into a little bit more detail about what a low FODMAP diet is, because I, I, right. I got some comments on based on the last podcast that I did with Jamie. It was like, what is this? So okay. when we're talking, you kind of, you kind of described it very, very briefly as a diet that avoids some of these short chain carbohydrates. Practically, what does that mean? Like, what are the foodstuffs that could be potential that, that people, that people can try to avoid in order to potentially, these are all the caveats can try to avoid to potentially reduce some GI uh, issues. Yeah, it gets really tricky. I'd, I'll, I'll dive into that, but I would say just the, the very practical take home for athletes is like, don't max out on fiber in the 24 hours before. <laughs> okay. So that, that's the very like one liner practical. So FODMAPs are fermentable, oligo, uh, dye, monosaccharide, and polyols. So these are just different names for carbohydrates. Some of the examples of different things that fit in that category are like wheat, rye, barley, beans, um, uh, lact- lactose, so dairy, especially for someone who's sensitive to dairy, maybe in the 24 hours before, uh, avoid some of that. And then, and then the polyol side of things is artificial sweeteners, which I feel like actually people don't really talk about that often, um, but um, maybe good to avoid those in the 24 hours before. 
And this applies during the race as well. So 24 hours before and into the race, don't, don't be loading up. Uh, and actually this is an important topic because, um, although I, I guess I would have expected it, there was a recent review out of, um, university of Illinois, I think that, that found that they surveyed like uh, a bunch of endurance athletes in the hundreds, uh, and found that not only were endurance athletes eating what they would consider a high FODMAP diet because athletes tend to eat healthy anyway, sure. a lot of yeah, fibers, yeah. fruits, yeah. vegetables. Um, but they were also doing so habitually around enduring exercise without, without knowing it. So, uh, that, you know, it's some evidence that, that maybe that's a very practical approach. So again, this is a harder one to tailor than, than the other things. And that's why I said, maybe the one liner is, you know, what if you just reduce your fiber intake in the 24 hours before? But it's so interesting. Cause we talked about this with Jamie, right. And I've had athletes on both sides of the fence with this is they've, I've had athletes that have perpetual GI issues, no matter how much gut training we do, no, no matter what we do yeah. in training and things like that. It's just always an issue. And one of the kind of advanced interventions that I've put into place with those athletes is, is going on a low FODMAP diet. And with some of those athletes, it's almost miraculous, like, to be honest with you. Like, it's such a night and day difference that I, I just kind of shrug my shoulders and go, okay, like, let's just keep doing this. But with other, but with other athletes, it's kind of a big nothing burger, you know, like nothing, yeah. not, like really nothing's different. And so I don't know quite how to put a pin on it other than to say that if you do it, if you're taking the approach that you want to do it um, as a as more of a lifestyle intervention versus the last few weeks of training intervention, you really have to make sure that you're getting with a registered dietitian, a registered dietitian or nutritionist because it's so it, it it it's so disruptive in your normal dietary pattern to the to this to this recent uh, study that came out of the University of Illinois kind of pointed out that you might be at risk of not having enough energy availability because you're switching around all these foodstuffs and trying to train at the same time. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it gets really tough. And that's why I, I, we actually put, I think, a line in, the, in our most re recent review um, that, you know, this is receiving a lot of attention. It, for some athletes, it definitely seems to work. Although we, you know, from the nutrition side of thing, and I, I'm a dietitian as well, I, you know, I wouldn't necessarily recommend low FODMAP all the time um, because, saying that is really this gets into the microbiome stuff. I'm sure you and Jamie cover a lot of the microbiome stuff, but um, these are the kind of the things that promote diversity and health of, of the microbiome. And unfortunately a side effect of that uh, could be gas production and, and drawing water into the gut. So um, I'm more of a fan of, you know, try the gut training first, the fluid training and carbohydrate, make sure you, you're, you're running training after all is adequate as well. And if that doesn't work for you, like you said, you have some athletes that doesn't matter. Like they just still get the issues if they gut train then move on to trying maybe low FODMAP in the, in the days before the event and during the event, see if that helps. And so I think that's, that's the bulk of the pre uh, before the race kind of thing that we can do practically uh, at this point. I mean, we're constantly, you know, expanding the research and hopefully we'll find more and more extensions, but uh, those are the big ones. Okay. So we've got these two big ones, training the guts, definitely the, the heavier hitter there. So let's assume we have a prototypical athlete that says, ah, I'm not going to train my gut beforehand. I'm, I'm just going just to deal with it during race day, which is what a lot of people do. And they're listening to this podcast now and going, that is me. That is me. I did that. Mm -hmm. I neglected to do this during training and I tried everything new on race day. They get themselves into a pinch and there's a significant amount of time left in the race. They still need to take down calories 
but they just feel their stomach is in knots or whatever, you know, whatever term we want to use for having, um, yeah. ha- having all these myriad of GI distress. What do they do when they're in the moment? Yeah. What can't, what can they do? We already went over, slow down and cool off and you can yeah. rack and stack that based on what you see in the research, but what can those athletes do? Yeah, that's, that's the most practical stuff is just slow down and cool off. This is a really hard one because once it starts and it gets severe, uh, it's almost like a weighted out sort of thing that's really going to drain you. So I guess one would be reduce your pace. Um, if it is occurring, you know, it could be just due to the nutrition, but these things all play in. So if it's a blood flow related issue, you're going to have to reduce your pace because the, the greater the drive, the more constriction to blood flow in the gut. Um, and you know, another hard thing about this is if you start to experience this and you're only halfway through the race, it, you might get stressed out over that, which right. is only going to exacerbate things. Right. Uh, so that's hard too. Um, in terms of what can you do other than slow down, um, is if you were maintaining like, a nutrition intra-race and nutrition regimen, you know, you had a goal of having two gels an hour and as much fluid, uh, maybe it's time to just you know, step back on that a little bit. Um, it's kind of paradoxical because if you feed the gut, it should increase motility. But, um, if you're having severe symptoms and I'm, I'm thinking particularly of nausea, um, and, and bloating, uh, you may have to just t- basically it's take a step back on everything. Keep going, right? But uh, <laughs> slow the pace, slow the pace of ingestion as well, um, at least to a safe extent. Like don't, don't halt fluid intake, especially if you're in the heat or something. But um, beyond that, it, it's I wish we had more research on the intra race stuff because it everyone's so different and the recommendations are going to have to be extremely individualized beyond just the practical, you know, slow the pace, try to cool off, uh, you know, calm yourself down, uh, sort of thing. Do any of the old wives tales actually work? Cause you like see them all ginger. Tale. I'm going to suck oh, on yeah. a butterscotch candy. I mean, even, yeah. even taking an antacid, that's probably not an old wives tale, but those first two definitely are like any of those other things. It, I mean, in all these things I kind of view as just throwing shit against the wall and seeing what sticks. Yeah. Whether or not they stick or not, I, I think is the big question mark. But I mean, based on uh, on your review, do any of those have any promise of actually working from a physiological perspective? And certainly they can from a psychological perspective if they heard, oh, this worked for so-and-so, so it might work for me. But from a physiological perspective, do any of those things actually have any merit? Yeah. So I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there. It's The research is few and far between. And usually if we do see an effect, it's quite small. Um, so then how do you determine if that's not just psychological? Like, you know, if some, if someone tells you the gin, I mean, ginger actually does seem to work for some athletes. Some people swear by it. Right. So, um, this is the thing. If you think it works, it might actually work. Yeah. So, um, I, I don't know. It's hard. There's no really concrete research, at least not a substantial message from the studies to say like ginger, butterscotch, some of these other small things that people swear by, uh, will work. Um, but what's ginger, the, bi- what's the bioplausible the best, mechanism? That's what I always kind of come back to. Like if it's going to work, tell me the bioplausible mechanism so I can yeah. believe, right? Not just, this is me like with my physiology brain on and not my belief brain. Like tell me the biologic, the bioplausible mechanism for any of those actions or for any of those interventions. And then I might believe it. Yeah. So uh, to be honest with you, I, I cannot provide one, <laughs> at least, at least not for, especially not for butterscotch. I have no idea. Um, but I tend to focus on the big things because, you know, people find those little things that they swear by and if yeah, it helps yeah. them, it helps them keep doing it. But 
uh, in my eyes, you gotta, you gotta do the, the big things like we were just talking about first and those have the largest impact and then try these little so-called white tails. Um, but no, it, it's much harder to provide like a physiological mechanism for those, those little small sorts of things, maybe on the antacid side and a medication side, but there's a much more concrete mechanistic pathway that could contribute. You know, I probably wouldn't recommend, um, if, if, if it really helps someone, then absolutely. But medication is, uh, is last resort, uh, I think, especially, uh, and, and I, I haven't mentioned it yet, but NSAIDs are almost a complete avoid in this, uh, situation. You want to avoid NSAID usage, especially just, during the rest. Just another reason to avoid NSAIDs. The long-term yeah. listeners of this yeah, podcast will... Long, long list. Oh, gosh. Well, yeah, they'll they'll remember my many rants on on NSAIDs and, and my, my issues with those, but that's a that's a, another story for another day. So I think the learning lesson with the gingers and the candies that you can suck on and any of the other kind of things is don't look for the bioplausible mechanism. Just believe whoever's giving it believe. to you. Yeah, believe. No, seriously. I mean, I, I think that that, like, just believe it works. Just trust yeah. them, believe it works, and then maybe, 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 maybe it actually will. You brought, you just brought something up that I think we might have neglected in the before, and this has popped up in a couple of research papers, which is using a course of proton pump inhibitors Mm -hmm. in the days leading up to a race to potentially uh, reduce specifically the damage that is occurring in the gut. What, what does the, what does the research say about that? Because I've actually used this intervention myself personally. And so we'll have to describe it a little bit for the listeners that aren't that aren't uh, familiar with the protocol. But, and I've also used it with athletes with kind of mixed, you know, it's N of five or whatever mixed kind of kind of mixed, mixed success there. So what does the research say say about uh, that type of intervention? And first off, what yeah, is think, what is the intervention specifically so that we so that everybody's on the same page? Gotcha. Yeah. So using proton pump inhibitors are just a, a method of reducing acid secretion in the stomach. Uh, and one of the symptoms that we really haven't touched on, um, but classified in the upper GI symptom list is reflux, right? So uh, that is something that some people experience. And of course, even outside of exercise, the, the common treatment for that is antacids. Or, uh, yeah, proton pump. There's many, but proton pump uh, inhibitors specifically. So, again, I, I think you kind of hit it there. Mixed results, it's going to vary person to person. There's probably, you know, a place for them uh, in some athletes, especially that already have underlying issues. But... I think you run the risk of, again, this goes back to the planning, but you run the risk of what if you're used to taking in acids, uh, specifically, I'm thinking of proton pump inhibitors, um, up into the week, leading up to the race, and then for whatever reason you forgot, and it's not in your bag on race day. Mm-hmm. Like, again, things have been planning. But because chronic use of proton pump inhibitors, once you come off them, actually uh, will jumpstart acid secretion right. um, until the body kind of finds its uh, homeostasis. It's again. a, fine, it's so a if, fine line that you're kind of walking there with the removal of the intervention. Yeah. Right. So imagine that you, you know, on race day, all of a sudden you, you're doing this intervention to try to reduce acid secretion, which might help with some of your symptoms. Um, and then all of a sudden, uh, you don't have that intervention and you have even more symptoms. Uh, so again, it's just a planning thing there. But uh, again, this is one of those things that comes far down the line for me in terms of interventions you might try. Like, I think you've got to try the big things first before you get into medications and, yeah. and things like that. And what we're talking about, just to back this up for the listeners again, is you take a course, like a seven to 10 day course of something like Prilosec or Nexium mm-hmm. or what, what are some of the other brand names that people are going to recommend uh those are, the big ones. those are the two big ones but you're taking that in advance of the race and then probably up to race day in an effort to 
reduce the amount of acid that's you know fluxing up in the upper gi tract essentially yeah which also i i actually haven't really looked into this aspect of it but may may reduce the speed at which you digest the nutrients you're taking in during race to fuel you um so again i'm not as familiar on that side of of things in the antacids because i uh, personally just ignore usually the very specific interventions like that because i want to focus on the big things but um but yeah they definitely work for some people so it's it's something that those you know at the end of the rope can can try so so is that's the end of the end of the rope that's after that's that's even for me for for, for you that's the end of the i mean if someone has a condition like gerd or you know they have reflux all the time then absolutely you're already using it to manage those symptoms but um if you're just an athlete wants to avoid gut issues i don't i don't think that's the first thing you, you turn towards why does it always come down to the simple stuff man come yeah on. i don't know because the simple stuff sometimes hard to do yeah, that's true that's true okay so what's next i mean you mentioned a lot of research that you want to do what what if you and we can do the 200 mile research trust me i can find those people everybody yeah. people raise their hand ultra marathon athletes always raise their hand to be involved in research because there's a dearth of research in the ultra marathon world For but sure. like specifically what would you like to get a better fix on or 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 find out if you can wave a magic wand and say okay i want to do this and i want to find the answers to this next week what would those things right. what would those things be yeah. So for me, um, I'm, I'm biased towards a couple things. One is personally, when I run, I get lower GI issues. So I'm biased towards researching that a little bit more just sure. personally. Um, but also in, in line with that is, uh, I'm in exercise immunology lab. Um, that's my favorite topic. Uh, and so the immune system seems to play a larger role on the lower gut side of things. So I'm really interested in what is the gut immune interface because, you know, we, we didn't really talk about it, but a, a consequence of reduced blood flow for a long time is potentially the loss of integrity of the gut barrier, which job is to keep bacteria out, right? And we can observe in some athletes that bacteria are actually getting in by, uh, you know, certain markers in the blood uh, that would suggest that the gut is now leaky. Uh, so I, I'm interested in, you know, what what is leading up to that? We're still trying to figure out what is leading up to that. But then at that, that point, when you start to get a large inflammatory response and you have bacterial components leaking into the blood because your gut's been damaged, um, what what can we do at that point to reduce kind of the overall inflammatory um, effect? Um, that, I think I'd say that's where I want to go. And then if you remember from the review, we had a whole section on uh, like the endocrine side of things, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of funny because we brought in um, our expert on that side, Dr. Frank Duca. He's here at the University of Arizona. He's actually a microbiologist and kind of a nutrient sensing gut hormone expert. Um, happens to be an athlete himself, but, uh, we, when we brought him in, he brought all these novel ideas in terms of all these hormones that no one has ever looked at. And so we look at, you know, when we talk about hormones in this context, you think about epinephrine, norepinephrine, cortisol, maybe insulin, glucagon, things like that. But no one ever looks at the, the, the stuff that the gut secretes. Um, so like these, they're usually involved in nutrient sensing. That's, I think that's why they've been ignored, but there's a lot of evidence there that just linking little pieces together that maybe the hormones that the gut secretes could be playing a role uh, in contributing to symptoms, especially upper GI symptoms. So um, those are the two aspects, the immune side I want to see more of, and then the, uh, the hormonal side. Well, you're going to get, you, you, you're just early in your academic and research career. So I'm sure, sure you'll get a chance to do a lot of that research. If people want to find out more about you and about the research that you're doing, where can they go? Uh, so I don't have a whole lot on social media. I think you've got a, a Twitter. I'm not going to remember the handle off the top of my head. But I can, I'll link I can it in the show you. notes. It's good for yeah, you. <laughs> I can send it to you. But, you know, like you said, I'm just, I'm still the student. So 
Uh, I don't really have uh, anything going in terms of getting in touch, but uh, feel free to share my email or uh, I'll, I'll give you my Twitter handle as well. All right. We'll link it all up in the show notes as well as I'll link the, sh- I'll link the uh, paper specifically to the show notes. Thank you for the work. I think it was a really cool paper. It got everybody thinking. And if anything, if we always come back to try the simple and effective solutions first before we go to the complicated and maybe less effective solutions with this stuff, I think everybody's going to, if we're reminded of that consistently, even through the academic research, it's a good process. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jason. And yeah, unfortunately, we can only make very broad practical recommendations at this point, but uh, there's a lot of research to be done. I don't think, unfortunately, you know, if it works, just got to do it. You yeah. just got to do it, right? I mean, when everybody yeah. wants the magic, you know, the magic exactly. button, the magic pill, but good old training gets you a long, gets you a long, long way. I'm gonna run out of ideas for this podcast because that tends to be one of the recurring <laughs> things. Yeah. <laughs> no matter yeah. who I bring on, that's the theme. Just train more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Train properly. Exactly, yeah. exactly. All right, Kyle. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jason. All right, folks, there you have it. There you go. Much thanks to Kyle for coming on the podcast today. I cannot believe how early in his career Kyle is and how what he's already brought to the table. I expect great things out of you and wherever you go, Kyle, no pressure there. This is not the last time that Kyle will be on the podcast. I can guarantee you that because if he's starting out of the gate with stuff like this, who, to, who knows what's going to happen next? So appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing your wisdom. Appreciate the heck out of all the listeners out there. I had this really neat experience out at Bigfoot uh, this weekend. As I mentioned, uh, I was out there, or as I mentioned during the intro, I was out there pacing one of my athletes where I had a number of people just hear my voice and turn around and recognize me through this podcast before they even saw me. And that means that the information contained within all these podcasts that I've been doing for the past year and a half is getting out there and getting in the community. And that really warms my heart because that is the ultimate goal that I want to have happen from producing these is I want the information to get out there and I want ultra runners to be successful. You can help that out by sharing this content with your friends and with your training partners. Send them a note, send them a text, send something out on social media it means a lot to me when i when i see that and ultimately i'm doing this for you guys as always this podcast is not monetized i intentionally have not monetized it i never will monetize it i simply do it to get the information out there and to hopefully have an informative and entertaining product that finds your ears every single week I appreciate you guys for uh, listening. So that's it for today, you guys. And as always, we will see you out on the trails.